Hey, if you need some help with your business during this quarantine lifestyle, check out our Facebook group. You can check the link in your episode description below. It's newly reinvigorated. I'm posting in there daily and trying to answer anyone's questions and having other people answer other questions. So if you, again, if you want to connect with other listeners of the podcast and hopefully we can help you and your business, then check out the link in your episode description below or search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast and Facebook and you'll see our Facebook group. There were people that told me you're crazy, Dick, and I said, the thing is, believe in yourself. Failure is not an option. Look within yourself for strength. Get back up after you get knocked down. If it was easy, everybody was going to do it. But at the end, it was hard work. I really didn't know what I didn't know. I quickly realized there were no policies, no processes, no procedures. Called her cell phone. She didn't answer. They went by her apartment. It was empty. They plugged Rhino Live in. Immediately, they realized that... You only touched on it briefly. You said in the beginning you had cancer three times, and you said you had a daughter with Down syndrome as well? I lost her in 2005, and my dad passed in 2009, and it's been a challenge. It hadn't been easy, but you just persevere and push through. Good morning. I'm Dick Reese, and I am the CEO and founder of Rhino Live, which is a software system that has revolutionized the real estate settlement industry. I founded Rhino when I was the young age of 62. I'm currently 76 years young. I enjoy getting out and being active, play golf and exercise regularly and try and keep this thing going as long as possible. The company has done extraordinarily well. It's been an interesting journey. When I started the company as a result of my being in the title industry, which I joined after a long and very successful naval career. So Rhino Live is the name of your company. It's R-Y-N-O-H Live, all one word. That's the product name, and that's our DBA doing business as. The company is actually Sagan Software. What I did is I founded a company called Sagan Systems, which is the holding company. And then I established LLCs for each of the products that I had developed. So all of my staff works for the big company. And right now, Sagan Software, Rhino Live is the dominant product and the biggest revenue generator for the company. So what percentage of revenue does that make up for you, like Rhino Live? 99% of our revenue right now comes from Rhino. So I say a big portion. So it is basically is the company. So how much did your company do in revenue last year? And like, what's the employee count? We did $7.4 million in business and we have 24 employees. Most of them are located in Virginia Beach, which is our corporate headquarters. But I have sales staff in different locations across the country. I've one of my long-term developers who worked with me in Virginia Beach for four years and has now been up in Pennsylvania for 10 years because his wife took a job as a professor in the University of Pennsylvania system. If it just make it as simple as possible, what does Rhino Live do the software? It is a financial management tool. We oversee the money that passes and exchanges hands in the real estate settlement industry. As you know, there are large dollar changing hands and we make sure that the money gets put into the right account, dispersed to the right individuals at the right time and that nobody puts their hands in the cookie jar, so to say. It was an industry when I got into it that really didn't understand how to monitor, oversee, and, and 
protect the money that has been entrusted to them. And I built it as a result of my experience as a title agent. And I simply gotten tired of losing money. In other words, you handle lots of money that comes in and out of your account. For example, when we were doing two to 300 real estate transactions a month, and each real estate transaction has 15 to 20 sometimes disbursements. In other words, checks that you have to disperse or wires that you have to send out as a part of the closing process when somebody buys a house or does a refinance. You have as much as $20 million in my case. I had $20 million in my account at any given time. And to make sure all of that money was moving in the right places and getting at the right time was awfully hard to do. Hence, um, I saw the need and built the thing that I called Rhino Live to track the funds. Yeah. And so anyone who's closed on real estate or even commercial real estate was what I did. And it's even more complex, all the different people you have to pay. But even if you're buying a house, if anyone's been through it, when you're looking at the appraiser and if there's an environmental issue or a building inspector, or you have all these things, like you're saying at closing, some of them only get paid at closing. And the distribution of all this just from one real estate transaction, you're saying could maybe go to 20 different people. So basically your software helps simplify that. Because if you did this, it sounds like about 15, 16 years ago, when you made this software, I can only imagine that it's hard enough, like you said, you have an account with all this money, but it's hard for you to figure out if you're having multiple closings in one day and multiple transactions, maybe 20 people per tra transaction getting this. I can see how it get very confusing and why you would need software to help you actually disperse that money. There are accounting systems where you can cut the check. Right. And what I rapidly discovered was sometimes money doesn't get where it's supposed to go. And it was everything from putting a check in the mail and either somewhere along the line, the recipient didn't cash it or it got put in the wrong inbox. I could sit here and regale you with all kinds of stories, like the time we were doing final title policies. After you complete the transaction, you sent the deed to the courthouse. And of course, you have to send a check with that to record the deed. And then when the deed comes back from the courthouse, you send out the final title policies to the lender and to the borrower, and you close out the file. And we use what we call one check, one policy. So if we cut a check for every title policy that we issued and all those outstanding checks and represented policies that I had to do. One day we opened the file and there was a second check that dropped on the floor. And it was a check for a home buyer's warranty. And I can remember very vividly the closer who was working for me at the time when I was running the title company came up and said, Mr. Reese, I've got this check for the home buyer's warranty. It was in the file and it didn't go out. Well, this was almost two months after the closing because it sometimes takes that long for the deed to get back. And she says, what am I supposed to do with this? Because we're supposed to get the check to the home buyer's warranty company within 30 days. I said, well, you can call and see if they'll take the check. And they wouldn't. And so I said, well, it's not our money. We have to return it to the buyer. And uh, we're probably going to have to be the home buyer's warranty company because we didn't get the check to where it needed to be at the right time. And that's exactly what happened. She calls the client says, I'm returning her $350 check. And the client says, what about my home buyer's warranty? And she says, well, now we'll stand behind that warranty as if we were the home buyer's warranty company. And three months later, their dishwasher goes out. And I had the privilege of not only buying a dishwasher, but a kitchen floor for the tomb of about $2,800, simply because the check didn't get where it's supposed to go. And that was one of those gee whiz moments. Wouldn't it be nice if I knew that that check hadn't cleared? And this has gotten into how the whole product really has changed the real estate settlement industry. Because when I first entered the industry, there was a requirement that you only had to balance your books. 
reconcile your accounts once a month, which meant at the end of the month, you would take out your bank statement and you sit with a long ruler and you'd go down check by check and somebody would sit on the computer and it was usually my son and myself or in the beginning, it was my wife and me and she'd come in and help me because she was a banker. And we go item by item, check by check, and spend hours trying to balancing it. It never came out right. Manual processes make a lot more mistakes. And you go, oh my gosh, this one didn't clear, that one didn't clear, where does it go? The thing that kind of hit me right between the eyes was a couple of years after that event where we're doing a real estate closing and it was a particularly difficult closing in the sense that the seller had a bunch of liens against the property for unpaid taxes, unpaid child support, IRS liens for unpaid federal taxes, as well as the state taxes in the city. And so we sent out, I guess it was about nine or 10 overnights to pay off all the liens and judgments. And this was a closing in November. I think it was the 2nd of November. And we had a payoff that was due to the IRS on the 5th of November. Well, our overnight carrier guaranteed, you know, next day delivery. So we put the check in the envelope and dropped it off at the drop box that was right around the corner from our offices. And all of them made it to where they were supposed to go, except the one that went to the IRS. And we didn't know about it until the middle of December when the bank statement came and we were doing a reconciliation. Escrow manager came up to me and said, Mr. Reese, remember that closing? And she mentioned the client's name. I said, yeah. She said, well, the overnight carrier didn't get the check where it's supposed to be on time. And in fact, they lost it. There's no record of it ever being delivered. And it was the perfect storm. The seller had moved to Alaska and we were in Virginia and we had no forwarding address, no way of getting a hold of them. And so we called the IRS and all they would tell us was send us another check, explain to us what happened and give us all the documentation from the first submission. And we did that and they clashed the check and everything I thought was well and good. And six months go by and one day my receptionist calls me and says, Mr. Reese, I've got a very upset attorney on the phone and he wants to talk to the owner. I said, well, put him through. And I answered the phone and and the attorney, he didn't even bother to identify himself and just was stuttering and basically said to me, you owe me $50,000. You owe my client $50,000. You didn't pay off that mortgage to the IRS. That leaned to the IRS. You took all my money. And I said, who are you? And could you explain to me which closing this is all about? And the minute he mentioned her name, I said, oh, well, I know all about that. And we took care of that. And he says, no, you haven't. And I said, well, all I have to do is talk to the IRS and we can get this thing resolved very quickly. He said, well, I'm not going to let you resolve that. And if you don't pay me $50,000 by Friday, I'm going to sue you. And the payoff was only five or $6,000. So it was anywhere near 50. Right. So I said, well, I'll send you all, all everything, the documentation. Let's take this a reasonable man approach. And he said, you harmed my client. I said, how have I harmed your client? She had multiple judgments. We've paid all of those off. It was one of many. And, you know, I had a guarantee that it would be there. And it, unfortunately, sometimes things happen that way. And he said, I don't care. You had a responsibility to do that. And so I didn't pay him. I said, I'm not going to pay you. The, this exorbitant amount you give me, the amount that's allegedly owed. He said, well, if you don't do that, I'm going to sue you, which he did. And we went to court and the case was dismissed, except that I had to pay the penalty and paid off the IRS. And because there was penalties and interest because the check had gotten up there after the 5th of November. And the attorney said that I had a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the check got there and I should be calling and checking every single day. At that time, I was going to have to che be checking on hundreds of transactions every single day. And I'm going, how do I do that? And I knew I could never afford to have this happen again because you know how they look at court rulings as precedent for law. I had also created 
the software system, and I've kind of probably gotten ahead in this discussion because the whole genesis for Rhino started when I went to Arizona. And I think I've started this conversation a little bit backwards with you here. No, that's fine. If you don't mind, just let me cut in here from time to time because I don't want to cut off your story. But you just jumped in of a couple of reasons why you need your software. So I think we're still good. I think anyone listening now probably totally understands. So how much did you end up having to pay for this last story that you told us with the back IRS and having to deal with that? The whole bill when you got through with it was about $35,000. From the $5,000 IRS payment? Yeah, well, I had to pay like five or $6,000 to the IRS. The rest was attorney's fees. Okay, it's attorney's fees. That's what I was wondering. I'm like, penalties shouldn't be 5X, you know, whatever you're doing. Unfortunately, it was attorney's fees. And almost 20 years, I ran the title company. The only time I had to have any errors or admissions claim paid, the company was very fortunate that we ran a really tight ship and we made mistakes, but usually they were small ones that I paid out of pocket. Right. Even this sounds kind of small. It just seems like you've got a one of those dreaded attorney calls that screwed it up. I mean, if you didn't have the attorney in there, like you're saying, maybe it cost you an extra thousand and that was it. But it doesn't sound like a very fun business, at least from the first stories of why you needed to create the software. I mean, having to deal with this and I guess you might have still been using a computer. But even if you were, it's just like if you're just doing it at the end of the month, like you said, we're just talking about multiple transactions happening in a day and how many parties it goes to. It's not like you even have to do it daily. But if you're going to wait till the end of the month, then that's times 30, how much harder it is versus a daily log or transaction list. Of course, one of the things is I was in Navy. I spent 30-year Navy career. Okay. Do you want to jump back to how we got started? Because you're 76 today? Yes. Yeah. And so it's kind of funny too. I was going to point this out, but I literally just got done with the interview where a guy was in the Cayman Islands in a beautiful place, obviously. And then you're in Hawaii right now. Just before we get started with your story, do you go to Hawaii often or why are you doing this interview from Hawaii when you say your company's in uh, Virginia Beach? I am kind of in that transition point of wanting to retire to do something else. I'm a three-time cancer survivor. Wow. Do you want to start a podcast? I can help you out with it. <laughs> so I was like, what does he really look like? You know, now I'm looking at your picture on this thing and I can <laughs> see what you really look like. So it's almost like you're the mystery man. And your uh, podcast is what I spend my time listening to all the time now. As far as the Patreon stuff, I got in there. I just started getting excited because I was listening to these things and I was getting some value out of them. And then the affordability of it is like, you're not asking for a billion dollars. And so... I think you get a lot for that much money a month. I just felt like that considering all the value I was getting, being fair. Well, I appreciate it. I was going to say, it sounds like you listen to me more than my wife does. (laughs) But but we won't tell her that. Well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which... I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. So I'm a three-time cancer survivor, and I'm still in my go-go years. I'm very active physically, play golf almost every day, do Pilates, exercise. Yesterday, we took a three-mile hike, my wife and I. And so I enjoy it. And we jokingly say, this is our go-go years. We can still do that. And then you have your slow-go years. And then if you're like your mom, 
my mom's 95 and she's in her no-go years. And gosh, when those are over, you're gone. So I want to extend the go-go as long as possible. And I'm at that point in my life, I really would like to really retire finally and enjoy all of the successes that I've finally been able to achieve. It's been a long struggle because when I first developed this product and realized what the title industry was doing in regards to managing and overseeing their money, it was wrong. Yeah, it sounds like it because, again, what we even talked about. And how about this? If you want to jump back, we can jump back to you when you get in the Navy. But it sounds like you've kind of retired there in Hawaii, and that's why you moved out there or you're in about to. I live in Virginia. We're out here this time for three months. This is sort of a test case to see whether we're going to stay longer or just come once a year or twice. We have been coming twice a year, and they've only been doing that since 2017. Because when I first started Rhino in 2007, this is what I call my soft opening, and we just had agents around Virginia Beach and Norfolk, Virginia, using the software. And we had only, at that point, been able to do our integrations with one settlement software, one accounting system that's the dominant software in the settlement industry. And so for two years, we were local, and we only had one software. But right now, we integrate with over 20 different real estate settlement softwares. We cover the entire country. We have clients in 48 states in the District of Columbia. Our clients are everything from the very, very largest home services all the way down to the mom and pop shops in the little rural communities. And so we've got the mega clients. We have title insurance underwriters. We have over, it's a hard number, about 35, 40% of real estate transactions go through our systems nationwide. Wow. Well, so that's a big number. Yeah. So you've given us some numbers. Yeah. We definitely understand your size as far as you have some 20 something plus employees over 7 million in revenue. So you've given us a good broad view. And I just checked too. I want to congratulate you. You're our oldest guest on the podcast today. So oh, wow. you've won by three years. I like people that have some experience. Sounds like we have some. So if you started this in 2004, 2005, we're talking maybe you're about 64 years old or so during that point in time. How about we just jump back even, I mean, you coming out of college and going to the Navy, I know we can kind of quickly maybe go through it, but I'm just curious if any of that helped you with your business. I am definitely melded by what I learned and experienced in the Navy. I had a very unique, extraordinary career in many senses of the word. I graduated from the University of Texas. I was on a Navy scholarship to attend the University of Texas on an NROTC scholarship. I was graduated, commissioned, and married on the same day, June 4th, 1966. That was the height of the Vietnam War. And so I went into the Navy, thought I was going to be a pilot, but I didn't have the eyesight to be a successful pilot. So I wound up on a ship out of Newport, Rhode Island. Because of that experience in my first tour, I was picked up for early command. So as at the age of 29 years old, I was sent to command a minesweeper. And what's that mean? What's minesweeper do? It was, you know, wooden ships and iron men. One of the ways that you can protect your harbors and your approaches is to what they call lay mines. They're explosive devices or placed in the water. They can either sit on the floor of the ocean or be suspended in cables, sort of if you've ever seen some of the old World War II submarine movies with the big ball with the little horns on it, that's a contact mine. And so to protect the ships, you have these things called minesweepers who have all these devices they can drag behind them where they can cut the mooring cables on the mines. And that was a lieutenant commander's job, which meant that you needed to be in the Navy 10 to 15 years Right. I'm Googling this right now. This is interesting. Yeah. So if you minesweeper, it's all one word. It's basically a small kind of tactical ship where you're going and making sure 
that the big ship doesn't get go in contact with any of the mines that maybe other people have laid? That's correct. Okay. So this seems like a dangerous job. Like you probably don't want to necessarily be on the ship that's going to look for mines just to make sure. That's correct. Right. Okay. And they're made out of wood. Okay. Wow. I was a lieutenant. I had six years of service when I took command as an officer. And the guy I replaced had 16 years. Do you want to tell us how that was able to transition you coming out of the Navy? And then did that make you want to start your own business right away? Or what was your plan as you departed the Navy and got into the business world? Because it was 93, it sounded like you said, right, when you retired? Yeah. During Desert Storm, I ran the embargo of Iraq. And there's, I was commander of the Multinational Maritime Air Force. And there was a little book written by Al Santoli called Leading the Way, which talked about uh, key leaders who had an impact on the outcome of the war the first Gulf War, who had been melded by their Vietnam experiences. And I have a small chapter in that book. After that, I came back home, but I fought the war with a very serious illness called brucellosis, which had a profound impact on me and my career in the Navy. I went into a job after the squadron job where the last three guys had made flag. So I was on track, except that I came home and wound up being hospitalized for this Gulf War disease and then lost my job at the Atlantic Command because I went on what they call limited duty. I went up to Washington, and it's funny how lemons becomes eliminated at the time. I went into a job. I was the director of management information systems at the Bureau of Naval Personnel, and we were responsible for the conversion of the enlisted service records from paper to digital. And I got a call one day, and somebody said, I got a perfect job for you here working for a defense contractor. I said, well, when would I start? And he said, when we win the contract. And I said, well, if you win the contract, I'll get out of the Navy. You can use my resume. I just went back to doing my work. And I got called three months and said, we won the contract. You still get out? I said, yeah. And so I got out because there were there no many floors on my elevator left. And I went to work for this defense contractor, developed a couple of programs, and then left that job. Yeah, but were you out of the Navy at that point? Or are you still in the Navy? After I retired, I went to the worked for a defense contractor, which I really didn't like that. Okay, so this is a transition you're talking about. When you came out of the Navy, this is what you working for the defense contractor? Yeah, and I did that for a couple of years. You were like 50 years old at this time, just about, it seems like. That's correct. So yeah, up to this point, been all Navy stuff. Even now, even the defense contract stuff, it still sounds military-related, obviously. So you're still in that field. You hadn't started your own title company at this point yet. I wasn't happy in doing some of the stuff. And so and I was kind of like restless. And so my wife, who was a banker, approached me and said, well, why don't you go start a title company? I go, what are you talking about? Well, my wife was a private banker, which is now Bank of America. And she used to go to the real estate closings for her clients. And they had just passed a law in Virginia that you didn't have to be an attorney to do real estate closings. And she says, you ought to go start a title company because you know all about real estate. My mother was a very successful realtor in Houston, Texas. And when we were stationed out in San Diego in the mid-70s, she came out to visit and said, Dick, why don't you get out of the Navy and come home and help me run my real estate company? I said, no, 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 I don't think I can do that right now. And one of the other problems, I had a handicapped daughter. I had a Down syndrome daughter. My wife was 22 when my daughter was born. And so I stayed initially in the Navy because getting medical care, because pre-existing conditions, I wouldn't be able to get medical insurance to cover the illnesses of my Down syndrome daughter. And then I discovered that if you stayed in the Navy for retirement, she would get a portion of my retirement income if I had died before her. That's one of the reasons I stayed in. So when my mother said, why don't you get out and come home? That was going to be a problem. 
and almost got out when I was first eligible to retire, but didn't because that was right in the middle of the big savings and loan brouhaha in the mid-80s. And my wife was correct when she said, you know all about real estate. Well, I sort of, but I didn't because I knew about the realtor side. I didn't know anything about title. And so she said, I can hook you up with the paralegal that does all my closings and the two of you can see what you can work out. So I figured I could do anything. Yeah, I could figure it out. I could read the books. I was a quick study, I thought, except there were no books. And so we started the title company and I really didn't know what I didn't know. And I quickly realized there were no policies, no processes, no procedures. And so one of the things that really helped me more than anything else in the Navy, when I was at the Atlantic Command, I was the J-1, which was the head of personnel for everybody in U.S. Atlantic Command. They were doing this leadership training. And one of the nice things about the military was I did get a lot of leadership training. And so they were going through this thing called Total Quality Management, TQL, W. Edwards Deming. And so being as the J-1, they wanted this implemented throughout the Atlantic Command. And so I had the opportunity to, to actually go to study under Deming before he passed away. So I learned total quality management, statistical process control. My degree is in statistics and operations research. And this kind of melded into who I am and what I am. So I actually taught TQ. And when I started the title company and at Rhino or Sagan, I followed those 14 points. And, you know, you asked me what was my favorite book. And I quoted a book by Jim Webb out of The Emperor's General. But the thing that the book that probably helped me the most in my company was Out of the Crisis. And those 14 points about building in quality and removing fear. And that has really been the heart and soul of what I've done with running both the title company and Rhino. So the title company started in 1998. Right. So again, you're in mid fifties when you started that? Fifty five, yeah. Yeah, sounds like you said there wasn't a lot of knowledge or for you to set this up. So like how did you do in business like your first year and getting started? We did fairly well. In fact, we became very successful very quickly because I put processes and procedures in place. The only thing that I had a little me and my wife will tell you the transition of leadership navy style. I can't tell you to do something. I have to ask you to do something. <laughs> Was that hard for you to do since you're in your mid-50s at that point? Yes, it was. <laughs> I could imagine. Oh, it was extraordinarily different. When I walk into the room, nobody would stand up and go, attention on deck. Hell, anyway, half the time, they wouldn't even acknowledge me. <laughs> and in the Navy, I had almost 10 years in command at sea. I mean, during Desert Storm, I had 16 ships worked for me at one time. Definitely a difference in your power and authority, too, I guess, right? Yeah, in the Navy, they put this little button on your right side. They commanded Sea Star. They call it the is was button. You is and you was. <laughs> so I definitely was. And so that was hard. Did you get one of those stars to wear around the office too, or no? No, no, no. <laughs> you can't do that. I did have the plaque with the little bells, you know, but I, I took that out of my office. Put up this little sign. I know who's in command. I'm not sure who's in control. But that was probably the hardest thing for me was adapting to that mindset and the change in culture. But then again, there were some things that took me a while, quite frankly, as I struggled with it in the beginning. On the ship, you have to have the crew behind you to be successful. And I really had a lot of problems in some ways in relating to how people think and operating, particularly in the title company. And particularly when I first started building Rhino, you know, my wife would say to me, can't you explain it? Can you explain to me how this works and what it does and why this is important? And I struggled with that. And so did you get better at it over time? Is that what kind of made you successful? Oh, yeah. Over time. 
you know, and for the longest while. And here I was when I started Rhino, changing. The industry said you only had to balance your books or reconcile your bank accounts once a month. And here comes this guy, Dick Reese, who's new to the game. He's coming out there and saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing it once a month. You need to be doing it every single day. You have to use these things called positive pay. It's a system that prevents the bank from cashing fraudulent checks. You need to be using secure systems and dual authorization for wires and separate computers. And because after that experience I had with the UPS, here I did it again, the overnight being lost, I started doing research of what businesses did and how they operated. And I discovered that the big businesses, and they were describing businesses as those that, you know, had over $500 million a year in revenue. They used this thing called positive pay. They reconciled their accounts, their books on a daily basis. They had these checks and balances and separation of authority. Well, shoot, in my little title company, yeah, my revenue was only a couple, $3 million a year, but my gosh, I was putting seven or $800 million a year through my escrow accounts. And I was managing as much money as a big company, but I was operating like a mom and pop shop. And the title companies did understand that they were a business. They thought they had it until the end of the month to fix their problems and the bank would make them whole again if there was a problem in the account. But the Reg CC and all of these other rules, they really only had 24 hours to correct the problems. And the bank was under no obligation to make them whole because they provided them that information on a daily basis online. So when you started the title company, did it just grow slowly over time until you, I guess, developed your own software? That's obviously when there was a change in 2004. But if we kind of fast forward in our limited time here left, I'm just trying to figure out what your growth path was. And was it just all easy once you started getting in the business world and after you learned how to talk to people instead of directing them? No, actually, the title company became very, very successful. In fact, Rhino Live was not the first software that I built. Within two to three years, I lost total control of my operation. That was right, you know, the big refi booms and all that. And we were right on the cusp of it. And I had no idea who had what file, what the status of closing was. And so I said, I need a system to help me manage my day-to-day operations. So I built this thing called TAP, Transaction Assurance Program. So I was the first guy in the industry that I'm aware of that had this online transaction portal where I was scanning all of my documents. You could click on a hyperlink, the client could see what was going on with their real estate closing, and I internally uh, knew who had what file and what was being done on a day-to-day real-time business status. So I built Tab, I had this document scanning and imaging system, and by 2003, I was paperless, or nearly paperless in my office because of Tab. And so I was working on that when the whole genesis for Rhino really started with the positive pay, check fraud. And that was in 2003 was the first time I had fraudulent checks at my escrow account. And it was detected only because my wife was a banker and her assistant who wound up working with her for 28 years called one day and said, Dick, what are you doing with all these duplicate number checks, you know, clearing your escrow account? I said, Jackie, that can't be. We print the checks. You can't print the same number twice. She says, well, it's happening. I said, well, send me the checks and let me look at them. They were fraudulent checks. And somebody had gotten one of my checks and started printing duplicate checks. Well, shortly after that, I went to Arizona and saw 
for the American Land Title Association. I had just joined the American Land Title Association, and their guest speaker that year was Frank Abagnale, who wrote, who was the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio. And he talked about positive pay and the need for positive pay. I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, you have to have positive pay to protect you against check fraud. So I went back to the, at that time, my wife had left Bank of America. She was at a community bank where she started the private banking division for that bank. And so I went to the CEO who was, had been her boss at Bank of America and said, hey, I need this thing called positive pay. And he said, we're not going to do it. And so I went to another bank to get it, only to discover that it didn't work the software that I had. So I built it. So now I was doing positive pay and I was being approached by the bank that said, can you give it to this title company? Can you give it to this title because they're having check fraud? And then just things evolve. We take for granted that the apps that we use can connect and stay connected over the internet. Domain name systems, AKA DNS, makes that possible and are one of the most critical pieces of app infrastructure. Architecturing and managing reliable global DNS infrastructure is tough, especially when you consider the growing number of deployment options and distributed architectures. For example, app services can run anywhere on any cloud, stack, or platform. And while developers are great for helping develop an app, well, they're usually not DNS infrastructure experts. F5 cloud services have made app delivery and security so simple that anyone can set it up. And not only that, you can set up F5 cloud services fast. When you're on a small team, you need services that enable you to be agile and move fast and with confidence. F5 Cloud Services expertise as a service lets you achieve worry-free DNS infrastructure in minutes. The F5 delivers DNS tech with SaaS. It's designed for app developers and DevOps teams who want to move incredibly fast. Give your apps the DNS infrastructure they deserve with just a few clicks or API calls so that you and your team can spend more time innovating. F5 has 20 years of experience in the app services and they know what you need in order to implement a great performing app. So if you have an app or you're about to get started on one and you wanna help support our show, well, now's a great time to start F5 Cloud Services because F5 is offering a free trial for our listeners. Just visit f5.com forward slash millionaire. That's f5.com forward slash millionaire. People don't get to see all the stuff that I've been doing lately. It's like halfway through interviews, I'll cut them off and be like, hey, you know, I'll redo this with you, but it's not interesting enough. <laughs> Which they don't appreciate. It's kind of bruised to their ego sometimes, but you got to do what you got to do. So, <laughs> I guess you solved your own problem, obviously. You know, now hindsight's twenty twenty. Good thing that did happen to you because then you're able to incorporate this positive pay. And then if that was working, obviously the banks would want your competitors, your other title companies to do it as well. So I guess that's how you're able to become more of a software company and I guess sell or license your software to these people. And you said today it sounds like 30 to 40% of real estate transactions are done using your software. So it's quite amazing how you've come from the Navy to getting into the title business and becoming more of a software business, let's just say five or six years after that. So if we're just looking back on your story, especially the business part, what do you think is the hardest part? Or what are some things, again, talking to the people who are listening, who are entrepreneurs and want to grow their businesses, what's been the hardest part about doing this business implementation in your life? For me, it was changing the paradigm. Change will only occur when it can no longer be avoided. I think that was a Deming statement. 
getting the industry to change, to understand. For several years, I was an army of one that done Cahote proselytizing what I was supposed to do. And the thing that really made it for me was the financial meltdown in 2008. And that's when the industry tanked. Well, also in the title industry, a lot of people were putting their hands in the cookie jars because there really was no oversight on the escrow accounting. And there was a near simultaneous failure of two title insurance underwriters. One was Southern Title out of Richmond, Virginia, my home state. And the other one was New Jersey Title up out of New Jersey. They both failed because their agents were embezzling money out of their escrow accounts. And some of the people had defined the industry as the playground for criminals. You also had an attorney's title fund of Florida called The Fund. They had about $86 million embezzled. They would have failed had not Old Republic stepped in and acquired them and propped them back up. And so the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which is fairly supported the association of all the state commissioners of insurance that meets to look at matters affecting the entire insurance industry. And of course, there's the subcommittee for title, a small one. And their charter was looking at escrow theft, regulatory compliance, and business practices And they were putting together an escrow white paper trying to determine what the industry standards should be because clearly it wasn't working. Well, I got invited to testify in August of 2012, and I went up there. And I had already been doing this. A presentation was escrow standards, the imperative for change. And I just laid it all out for them. And I said, here's what you're doing. Here's why it's wrong. This is what you need to be doing. And this is the systems and policies and practices that need to be put in place. And essentially, that's what happened. That was what was adopted. In fact, the American Land Title Association adopted what they call best practices and and their standards. They don't call out Rhino Live, but if you read what you're required to be doing, it can really only be met by the use of my product because it's the electronic verification, it's financial transparency, it's real time not daily, real-time reconciliation of your accounts. And we have saved 15 clients that I know of. I don't have a single client that's paying me more money than I've saved. And that, to me, that's been the most rewarding thing. That's what I really am working for. Why did you even want to start the title business? You'd have to ask my wife. She wanted you out of the house? I just wanted to do something that was going to be mine. I mean, even in the defense contracting business, I created this program. In fact, I went to the, one of the little companies and I, and I said, hire me. I have this vision for a product. Hire me. I'll get it funded. I'll get it running. I did that, but it wasn't my product. And when I became so successful, they let me go because they didn't want to have to pay me all the money. Right. So did that light a fire underneath you to start your own thing? Yes. I wanted something for me. Did you have plenty of money saved up? Did you have to work? Or no. like? What was the risk? Because I think what I'm pulling from your story is anyone who's listening to me, I think you're never too old to start a company or start your own thing. And really, you started your first one really at 55, it sounds like. So if you have any input or any thought process, I'm like, okay, maybe I didn't know how much money you had, or maybe someone's listening doesn't have much money. Maybe they think they're too old and they might be 30 or something like that. Could you help anyone relate or tell them like what your process was and how you were able to do it? It was self-funded, much to my wife's chagrin. I was very successful in the title company. Every penny I made, I used to fund Rhino. And I didn't even talk about this, but I also fought David and Goliath. If you remember the movie about the windshield wiper, the guy who invented the varial speed windshield wiper, it's called Touch of Genius or something. I can't remember the name of the movie, where he went to, I believe it was Ford, 
and said, I've got this variable speed windshield wiper that you ought to be able to put on your cars. And so they gave him a great big contract and he went out and started a factory. And Is it called Flash of Genius? Flash of Genius. That's it. Yeah. Thank Google. It's not me, but that's good. Don't ruin it at all because I want everyone to watch it now. But yeah, it looks like you got some good actors. I had one of those. I was a very successful title agent. I had the largest. I was an agent for one of the national underwriters. I was their exclusive agent. I was in business partnerships with them. And so when I had this product called Rhino, I went to them with the idea. And we had non-disclosure agreements and all that other stuff. And this all was in 2008. They lost $280 million in 2007 from embezzlement and other problems. And I had been talking to them since 2004 about Rhino. And they weren't interested. And so in 2008, they approached me and said, we're interested in this. And so we started to do the dance. And that was the year I had prostate cancer. They gave me a binding MOU that said, sign on the dotted line. And when I, of course, when I read it, my board looked at it and they said, this is nuts. They declined to work with me. And very shortly thereafter told me that they had a company that did exactly what I did. They found, which they did is they pirated. And so we had a file suit and had to raise $2 million. By the time I got through all of that in 2015, I was in deep in debt, seven figure. But failure wasn't an option. And it was David and Goliath. And I was the only executive in the company. I was an army of one. It really took its toll. And it was only after I came through that we prevailed. But it's kind of like a Pyrrhic victory because you dig two graves that I was able to truly become successful. I was able to hire other people. And there were people that told me, you're crazy, Dick. And I said, the thing is, believe in yourself. Failure is not an option. Look within yourself for strength. Get back up after you get knocked down. If it was easy, everybody was going to do it. But at the end, it was hard work. There were nights when I first got started where I didn't come home at night. I was working. In fact, the janitor in the building where we were at our offices, when my wife would come in and said, you got to do something about your husband. You got to relax. And that's part of why I am where I am right now. I finally could relax and finally be successful. And the people love my product. I mean, one of my favorite taglines is Craig Haskins with Nightberry Title. We did a little testimony. He said, the three things I look for in the morning. My first cup of coffee, the Wall Street Journal, and my Rhino Morning Report. But the whole key is my people. I haven't even talked about my people. To me, my people are my passion. I have a core of very loyal people who have been with me. My two developers, John and JD. Developers like to hop around. They've been with me for 12 and 14 years. Stephanie Davis, who's my ops manager, who now is my product manager, she knows the product better than me. And Deborah, who is my comptroller, they've got my back. We are a flat organization. Everybody has an input. We work profit sharing. Everybody in the company gets the same bonus. Well, I don't care if you're an entry-level uh, support person or you're a department head. You all get the same bonus. And we pull all the departments together so you break down the emming barriers. And so the bonuses are based on the performance of all three departments together. And so everybody is helping one another make their barriers. And I try and put my people in golden handcuffs. We love dogs in the office. You know, we have pizza days. All the stuff, I mean, it's just, and it's awesome. The woman who was running the company, Mary Gomez, she's a Six Sigma black belt, and she has done a magulous job. My son, who was there, and being my, the boss's son has really been hard for him, but he's blossomed. He's taken over the sales and marketing for the company, doing great things. I'm only as good as the people that are behind me. And the fact that I can come to Hawaii for three months and not miss a beat with the company says it all. So in 2015, you talked about having to file a lawsuit. 
were you the only guy left in the company? Because that's the only part I was a little confused by. I was the only executive. At that time, I think there were four or five of us. Gotcha. You're talking about the developers and yeah. you said a couple have been with you for about 15 years or so. And then, so tell us what happened with that lawsuit. Were you able to like actually make money from it? No, I didn't make money. We were ready to go to court. And fortunately, because I had a good attorneys, I think it'd been in Norfolk in the rocket docket. And like two weeks before there was a Supreme Court ruling about this did method its patents because the product I did, Rhino was patented. And so they challenged the patent and was going to, and that was going to drag things out for another couple of years. I couldn't deal with it. So we just settled out of court. It was going to be too difficult. So we burned through all of the money and it said, anyway. Yeah, and you probably burned through a lot. Just Yeah. I mean, I was working all day doing the company visit. How much money did it cost you to do all that to go to court? Well, over two and a half million dollars. That's how much it cost you? Well, not me. I had to raise the money, but it's got to be repaid. So that's what you're talking about. You went in debt is because of this, right? Yeah. So was it all worth it? Yeah, that is. Got to make sure I ask. Yeah, it is. I mean, this, the lawsuit, I wish there was another way to have done it. It sounds like it, obviously. I think that's everyone's business owner's last worry. Like that's the last thing you want to deal with because it's already hard enough to manage people and run a business, much less add a lawsuit onto it. And then you only touched on it briefly. You said in the beginning you had cancer three times and you said you had a daughter with Down syndrome as well? I lost her in 2005. Oh, so right when you started Rhino basically, right? Yeah. And my dad passed in 2009 and wife's had a couple of, it's been a challenge. It hadn't been easy, but you just persevere and push through. I've been married for 54 years. And my wife jokingly says, there's no logical reason we're still married. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, looking back on your whole story, it sounds like it's one of obviously perseverance. I know we didn't dive into too much of the details, but I didn't think it was really necessary as much because you've got a broad spectrum of experience. But looking back on it, is there any words of wisdom, again, for any entrepreneur who's listening right now? I think it's important to believe in yourself. Make sure you've got a good CPA, good banker, and a darn good lawyer so things are set up properly. And then I chose to self-fund. I never had anybody looking over my shoulder. I like that. There are those that want to go out and raise money and use other people's money and for those reasons. But so that's pros and cons. Would we be bigger? Probably, but would be more successful. The profit margin on our company is phenomenal. That's all I can say. And then I guess your last words of wisdom, if you're going to have a real estate closing, make sure you use Rhino software. Yeah. Whoever the title company is, Rhino Live. We've saved our clients millions of dollars. And the interesting part was, was that even touch on our very first client that was a law firm in Virginia Beach. And when we did the training, back then we used to go into the offices do training. Now it's all internet-based. But we went and did the training. And the next day, the paralegal who was managing their escrow accounts didn't come to work. And she was that 15-year employee that had been coming to work and worked the longest hours, didn't take vacation, da 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 And now that was you know, on a Friday. She didn't come to work. And the next weekend, on the following Monday, she wasn't there either. And they began worried. She's a woman in her early 50s. They called her phone, called her cell phone. She didn't answer. They went by her apartment. It was empty. They plugged Rhino Live in. And oh, bang. Immediately, they realized that she'd been embezzling, at that point, out of that account, $153,000. I thought it was just going to be something and help balance the books. I had never looked at it as a way to catch fraud. We prevented check fraud. We prevented wire fraud. We prevented cyber fraud. We've caught embezzling employees, bank errors. It's phenomenal. And in fact, right now we do this program called Rhino Live because it's associated with Valentine's Day. We solicit inputs from our clients and overwhelmingly. They love our product. 
in fact, they would say that the Rhino is the only product that does what it says it's going to do. Thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. And I think it's been a very interesting one. If anyone, Richard, wanted to say thank you for doing the podcast, is there a best way for them to reach out and say thank you? Either through text me or call me at 757-536-1959. Texting is probably the easiest and best way. Or dick.reese, R-E-A-S-S, at R-Y-N-O-H.com. Well, thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. And I guess if people were going to text you or call you or whatever, probably it's best, to, like you said, to text first. But are you open to any entrepreneur who might want to talk to you about like growing their business? Or is it is specific, like, would you rather them email you first? Because I just want to make sure if you're giving out your phone number that we make sure that people aren't asking random stuff, mm -hmm. that we make sure we get someone that you can actually help there. Be probably the best. To, I will respond to everybody. Let's put it that way. Okay. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. And Again, being appreciative of your time and having the opportunity to go ahead and help those other entrepreneurs learn from your story. So thanks again, Dick. Yes, Austin. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to share it. All right. Thank you. Have a good rest of your vacation now there. Will do. Bye-bye. Hey there, Millionaire Interviews listener. Even though you're probably alone right now while listening to this podcast, Know that at this very second, you're actually listening with thousands of other listeners all around the globe. And if you'd like to connect with those listeners all around the globe, or maybe you want to ask one of our guests a question about their episode, well then check out our Facebook group. Just search for Millionaire Interviews Podcast. Hasta luego, baby.